Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Nitschie. And we're so glad you can join us. So I've been on a brief hiatus from Brussels Sprouts. And of course, Carissa and Jim have done an excellent job in holding down the fort. Um, But I have to say, I'm really happy to be back. Um, And we have a lot of excellent episodes in the pipeline uh, with the Biden administration really just over a month under its belt. I think we're all still watching intently and paying attention to the signals and looking to understand where policies and approaches are headed. And one issue that's been kind of front and center of this administration is the effort to return democracy and human rights to uh, the center of American foreign policy. And President Biden made an early campaign promise that the United States would hold a democracy summit early on in his administration, uh, which has been an important signal of the priority that the president places on uh, tending to and restoring democracy both at home and abroad. Um, Of course, the insurrection at the Capitol raised some very pertinent, important questions, not just about the state of U.S. democracy, but also our ability now uh, to promote it and support it abroad. And I think that still is a critical debate and one that we are going to take on in this edition of Brussels Sprouts. And to do that, I'm really excited to welcome two really outstanding foreign policy thinkers, Um, who have both written excellent and very thought-provoking articles on this debate on the role of democracy in U.S. foreign policy. So I'm really excited to welcome Tom Wright and Emma Ashford. Welcome, Tom. Welcome, Emma. Thanks, Andrea. It's great to be here. Yeah, Uh, great to be here. Really quick backgrounds. I think most of our listeners probably are quite familiar with your work, but Tom Wright is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. And he's also a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a non-resident fellow at the Lowry Institute. And Emma is a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Skokost Center for Strategy and Security, which is a mouthful, Emma, um, where her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. So welcome to you again. And I thought what we could do is just kind of kick things off with that really um, fundamental central question to this debate over Um, what the role of democracy should be in U.S. foreign policy. And obviously following the insurrection, as I said, that kind of put that question um, back front and center, raised really important questions uh, about that. And I know you both have, like I said in the intro, written pieces on this. And so maybe we can just start with each of you kind of giving giving a summary of your position on that question about what you think the role of democracy should be in U.S. foreign policy. Um, and Tom, we can we can start with you, and then and then head over to you, Emma. Sure. Um, thanks, and it's great to 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 be here, and, and really looking forward to this. Um, so, you know, my view is basically that you know the U.S. has just been through four years, uh, I think, of one of the most challenging periods, certainly in in modern history, where democracy, I think, has been eroded because of President Trump's actions and sort of the breaking of norms. Some of that was pre-existing condition there, like when he came in, but I think uh, he did a very significant damage that culminated in what happened on January 6th. But there was also a foreign policy dimension where he really, I think, not only didn't care about democracy, human rights and values, but actively sort of rooted for the other side, right? He liked 
sort of strongman autocrats. Um, he liked to smash norms. He didn't like sort of international institutions or international law to, to a much greater extent even um, you know, than someone like John Bolton or, or those who would be sort of quite ideological. And so we end up on sort of January 20th, 21, um, with a with the US foreign policy that I think is is really sort of disoriented and is trending in the direction of of uh, of certainly not being helpful for democracy and human rights overseas. And we've seen these repercussions where you know there's a democratic recession, uh, democracy and the rule of law is eroded in a whole bunch of countries. Autocrats like MBS are empowered um, not only to uh, to be repressive against his own people, but also to bully and coerce others, you know, Canada, Germany, um, and several other sort of examples. And we see it, of course, from Russia, China, and many others too. So the question to me is, in this situation, you know, should the U.S. say, well, you know, boy, it's, we, we've sort of had a pretty hard time and got beaten up ourselves or beaten ourselves up internally on this. So we're gonna sort of take a time out for a while. Or do we say, you know, we actually have a stake in, in this fight. The president just waged an election about restoring norm, norms at home. So it's important to do that overseas. And the final thing I'd say is that that challenge, I think, is fundamentally different than the way that it was thought about in the 2000s in terms of promotion of democracy to the Middle East or anything. We're now really talking about protecting it both at its core and then speaking up for 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 victims and groups I think like the like the Uyghurs and and others who you know are subject to if not unprecedented actions certainly very egregious in in, in the modern sort of context that's great so Emma I know you've put a, a different frame on it and are kind of thinking about it a bit differently so yeah I would love to hear your, your similar take and kind of what you talked about in your great foreign policy piece. Yeah, so um, so I, I do take a somewhat different approach to this than Tom. Um, and perhaps, you know, maybe we can punt on the sort of democracy summit uh, or role of democracy in US foreign policy question. We'll come back to that in a bit. Um, but when it comes to the, the democracy promotion question, um, I tend to date this problem back further than just Donald Trump, um, right? So, so Tom is absolutely right that, that Trump was, was very problematic for America's, um, for America's image and standing in the world, for our ability to portray ourselves as a consolidated democracy, right? Donald Trump would have been Xi Jinping or, or you know, Egypt's Sisi if he could. That's what he wanted to be. He was a strong man. And, and you know, what we saw on January 6th, I think, was the logical conclusion of his attempt to try and put himself above the, the rule of law. Um, but America has had uh, a complicated or problematic relationship with democracy and democracy promotion for, for longer than that. Um, you know, if we go back to 9-11, we go back to the war on terror, we go back to the Bush administration's sort of grand strategic approach to the world and their notion um, that they could spread democracy and, you know, sort of a reverse domino theory, right? That if they managed to bring democracy, particularly to Iraq, then other countries would fall. And you could actually go back to the 2000s and, and see people like Dick Cheney making these statements that they thought they could democratize the world by force. Um, now, we, we all know how that turned out, right? Um, the problem, I think, is that that's kind of the activist 
method of, of democracy promotion, America has long had this much more passive version of democracy promotion, right? Where we act as the shining city on the hill, we provide an example, um, we sometimes help civil society activists in other countries, we help them figure out what they can do to improve things at home, um, you know, USAID or, or NDI, those groups can help too. And what I tend to think is that that second mission um, or that second approach to democracy promotion has been fundamentally damaged by the first more, more activist approach. So the fact that a lot of authoritarians now see any attempt to improve human rights or democracy in their countries as an American attempt at regime change. Um, and then when you add in sort of the damage that Trump has done to America's image over the last four years, I think even that passive version of democracy promotion becomes very problematic. And so in that foreign policy article, I basically sort of said, let's stop and take a step back, think about what we need to do to shore things up at home before we try to think about how we can reshape the world and, and make it a better place. And I, you know, that's a very unfortunate thing to have to say, but I do think that our problems at home are now such that we can't even act as that example to the world um, without, without some reforms. So I think, I mean, so part of this comes down, it's almost like a sequencing debate, which is kind of in the democracy literature, there's often a sequencing debate about how we push, you know, advocate for democracy um, in, in countries. So, but Tom, so you, but your view, and, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, so I'll let you comment, but is that, that we should be able to do both at the same time? Um, is that right? That we don't need to wait to get our own house in order before we kind of continue with these more passive efforts to support democracy abroad. Is, is that right that you, yeah. that it's not a first and then? Right, I mean, no, I, I'm all in favor and you know strongly advocate taking the challenge to democracy at home very seriously and being very actively um, sort of engaged and working in that and acknowledging those flaws, you know, acknowledging that it is a struggle. Um, I'm a little skeptical of the, Shining City and the Hill, you know, example, because I, I think that, um, and even when the president says, President Biden says, you know, the power of our example rather than the example of our power is the key driver. I mean, there's obviously something to that, but I think we need to be honest that, you know, that example is not going to be, uh, you know, this incredible, um, you know, gold standard, you know, of democracy. I mean, this is going to take and some time to do. And it's also true um, that ever since World War II, you know, when the US has been engaged in the world, autocrats have responded with charges of hypocrisy, pointing to um, abuses of power uh, in the United States and saying that there's no standing, right? So I don't think it's ever been the case that autocrats say, you know, there's an example in America that's sort of really impressive, right? They, they don't pay any attention to that. They, what they really care about is whether or not um, there's leverage behind it, whether they, they actually care about the example of US power, right? Now, that may not be military power, like that could be soft power, it could be economic power, diplomatic power, but that's ultimately sort of what they care about. And the activists, I think that's sort of what they care about too. I mean, yes, they get inspiration from some of the things that happen in the United States and, and many things that happen elsewhere in the world too, right? There's, there's a long tradition of resistance and, and protest that I'm sure, you know, feeds into, you know, the students in Hong Kong and, and Navalny in Russia and the women arguing for their rights in Saudi Arabia. Um, but ultimately what they want is for people to stand with them in some way. Now, I think we can talk about 
what that is, you know, and what might be going too far and what might not be far enough. Um, but I think it is, you know, that leverage and that power is an important part of the conversation, I think, in terms of the U.S. is having, and that's why it's important. Really good point. So Emma, let me just to kind of flesh out your thinking too, because um, is, and so, you know, early now in the Biden administration, there's been a couple of um, points of focus on the democracy and human rights front, thinking about protests in Belarus, thinking about the protests in Russia, and of course the coup in Myanmar. And so in kind of, as you think about it, what would be an appropriate U.S. response to those types of issues, whether, you know, or, and, and with the Uyghurs, for example. So when there are human rights abuses or kind of affronts to democracy or threats to activists or kind of that, you know, a wholesale coup and rupture of kind of Myanmar's democratic process, as you're thinking about it, then how, you know, how does the United States calibrate a response to those types of things when we are also dealing with our own problems domestically? How would, how would you think about those types of issues and what an appropriate response might look like? Well, I think that, you know, one problem is that there's a, there's a range of issues there in addressing a range of countries, right? Myanmar is not Russia for example, you know, with one, we have far more concrete interests that we need to also handle in addition to being concerned about human rights. When it comes to Myanmar, our interests are fairly minimal and we need to, you know, then we could be talking about things like sanctions, um, like the Obama administration had withdrawn some sanctions. We could be thinking about putting those back on. There are options available in the case of these small repressive states that aren't necessarily there when we're, when we're talking about Russia, um, particularly because Biden said, I believe in one of his first foreign policy speeches, you know, that the US needs to talk with adversaries to try and achieve our interests. Um, and then he also said, you know, we need to address human rights. So the administration is going to have to think. And for me, I would put the emphasis on interests where we actually have those those concrete interests. Um, and then I would add one one other area, which is um, not not my idea, not an original idea. Um, Peter Bynar had this really excellent column on this question a couple of weeks back, where he talked about effectively um, taking a, a first do no harm approach to US foreign policy and human rights, in which he talks about putting pressure on the states that we actually have the most influence with. And that's the ones that we are aligned with, the ones that we're allies with. So putting pressure on the Saudis, holding you know, arms sales as something that we have over them to try and encourage them to say, release dissidents, which actually happened in the last couple of weeks. We have influence over Egypt, for example, yet we're still selling them lots of arms. So th there are places where there are countries that we actually do have influence over that we're not using that influence. Um, and then there's the countries, as I say, the bigger countries where we may have to conclude that our interests matter more. Um, but, I, but I think my point is that it's not that the US has to solve all of these problems. Um, if we are trying to um, dial in what our response should be, we should be focused on US interests first, we should be thinking about how we need to fix things here at home, rather than turning around and telling the world sort of you have to fix your behavior and we're going to do it for you. So one question too, um, kind of on the, you know, we, so part of the thinking too is that things like the insurrection on the Capitol, but also kind of events through the uh, Trump administration over the last four years have essentially kind of discredited the United States and its ability 
to promote democracy. And that's certainly the type of rhetoric that we see from Putin and Xi and Lukashenko and all of these other folks who are, you know, basically saying, well, if the United States is doing these things and they're, they have no kind of moral authority to be a leader on democracy and human rights issues. So that's one, obviously, uh, you know, adversaries, some of these countries are taking advantage of that type of rhetoric. But there's also the kind of damage to perceptions with allies, too. And, I, you know, you look at public opinion polling in Europe, for example, and the United States um, public views of the U.S. in many cases are no better off than Russia and China. Um, so, Tom, how, how do you think we can work with allies? How do we engage with allies on these issues when, you know, if we're really being honest about the fact that our, our reputation has been damaged in many of these countries, even, even with allies? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess my first point is it's sort of interesting to flip the question for a second, right, and say, you know, should the EU, should the UK have commented on the insurrection on January 6th? Right. Or should they have said, yeah, you know, Trump did this. That's fine. Like, that's a matter for Americans. Um, we have interests with the United States. We need to work with them. So it really doesn't matter to us what happens there. And if Trump somehow manages to hold on to power, we'll, we'll immediately recognize that because it's in our interest to do so. Because that's what we're talking about. Right. Like we're you know, I want them to criticize that. Right. I want them to say, no, there's a standard of the rule of law, that this is very concerning. I want them to be making statements, which they did. Um, but it's not, you know, if we're to apply the same standard, you know, then we should think that they shouldn't do that either, right? That they should be totally silent in Trumpism and the insurrection. Um, and obviously, you know, I think that everyone should speak up, including when the US does things that are wrong. And on Emma's point, I mean, I 100% agree on putting pressure in Saudi Arabia and on Hungary. I don't think there's anything sort of inconsistent there at all in terms of the point, most of the people writing and arguing for this in recent times have been making that point, right? Like I've made that point many, many times that you, you have to be serious about the allies. Yes, there may be times when there's such pressing interests involved that you need to compromise, but you recognize that that's a sacrifice and in other cases, including Saudi Arabia and Hungary, you do dial up the pressure and you do use that. Um, but I also then think you should use that elsewhere as well. In, in terms of, Andrea, the question you asked, um, I think when you apply it um, to real world cases, um, that concern doesn't really arise. You know, the, the, the Europeans are worried about what's happening in Belarus. You know, they are worried about what's happening in Myanmar. They are worried about what's happening in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. There is actions completely independent of US pressure in the European Parliament and elsewhere on all of these issues. Um, so I don't think they're gonna say, we don't wanna work on this thing that we care about because you know you have your problems. It may mean that they hedge a little bit more, may mean they want to be more autonomous in how they do it. I'm totally fine with that. Like I'm fine with them getting they're in their own way. What I'm saying is that the US should be playing an active role rather than either doing the Trump thing, which I know is not what Emma's saying, right? She's not arguing the Trump thing or being just agnostic and saying, you know, there's really nothing we can do here because that would be a body blow. I mean, the Europeans, I think, would see that as a body blow to what they care about if the US stopped you know, advocating for these things. Now, they also worry about the opposite, to be fair, right? They worry about a Cold War with China. They worry about it being very Manichaean. 
they, they always have this thing with the US, like we want you to do stuff, but don't do too much, you know? Um, so there's there's the Goldilocks issue, right, for sure. But um, but I, I think they do want an actively involved uh, America on these issues. Emma, do you want to weigh in there? Sure, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's, I think there's something to the notion that that Tom had in his article, and he's kind of mentioned here as well that you know that America has never been perfect, right? There's a whole there's a whole literature on um, desegregation as a Cold War imperative, right? So that the idea that America had to um, you know improve civil rights for African Americans here at home in order to actually be seen as as fully democratic during the Cold War and actually be regarded as better by other states. So I think there's something to that, um, but that is the reason that I tend to frame this much more as defensive um, than I do as something that we're trying to promote. And actually, to be honest, I really think we should just jettison the phrase democracy promotion entirely, because I think at this point it has so many connotations that, that we really don't need. So what I would like to see the US do when it's, when it's talking to allies is going to other countries um, and, and not necessarily in the, the role of, of leader Right. Um, so not necessarily going to other countries and saying, hey, America's back. We know best. We're going to fix all of this. But going to them as one of, of equals. Right. First among equals, perhaps the most powerful state. But but, you know, we have similar problems. You have similar problems. Populism is a growing problem across the Western world. Democratic retreat is a growing problem. Um, you know, far right extremism is a growing problem. These are things that we as democracies can face together. Um, and so, you know, from my point of view, what I would like to see us do is approach allies, work with them to find common solutions that we can all use to, to sort of fix some of our domestic problems before we, we turn our attention outwards and try and, you know, approach the whole world on this topic. But can I just come in and doing this? Because I, I guess, I, I mean, I agree with that too, right? I mean, I mean, I, of course, work with allies for sure. But I mean, to to just have a concrete example, I can't remember the exact time period. But a few months ago, you know, China arrested the dozens of the young sort of democracy activists in Hong Kong, right? It was a, a night when they sort of decided to um, sort of go the full way in terms of really increasing sort of repression. At the time, I think it was during the transition, you know, Jake Sullivan tweeted about it very explicitly. I mean, was he right to do that? Like, I mean, that's an external thing. Like, should we say anything about that? I mean, Europeans are also saying that they were concerned. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to figure out where we disagree because, I mean, do you disagree that something should be said at the highest level? And then if not, like, is it that it should be followed up by action? I mean, where's the point where we diverge? I, I think it's action. Um, you know, I, I think that there's not a, there, there is not a huge problem in expressing concern even at the highest level on, on some of these issues. I think where it becomes a problem is when it starts to actually interfere with our, our ability to sort of talk to other states, work with other states. And I think, you know, um, I am far less of a I'm not a China specialist, um, but on the question of Russia, you know, some of the steps that we have taken in recent years um, to try and you know, improve human rights domestically in Russia to, to minimize corruption, things like the, Glo the Global Magnitsky Act, things like um, some of our sort of post-Crimea sanctions that were aimed on, you know, minimizing pushback on dissidents, those have backfired pretty horribly in, in the case of Russia. Um, and I think they've actually made it harder for us to deal with Russia on some of the questions like strategic stability that we actually have a really strong interest in. So, you know, for, for me, I think the problem is where 
criticizing human rights abuses um, turns into us trying to force another state to to do what we want on that question. And, and you know, and again, there may be situations where that's called for. Um, I am still personally quite ambivalent about what we what we do about the Uyghur situation, which I think really does rise to the level of of sort of a global concern. But for most human rights concerns, that's that's not the case. Most of the time, um, it, it really is a question of are the actions that we take to try and promote human rights, are they achieving anything? Are they interfering with our interests? And, and unfortunately, I tend to conclude we rarely achieve anything and we interfere with our interests quite a lot. So I want to go, I do want to go back to the point about how to work kind of with allies and partners on this too, um, in light of kind of that question about whether or not our kind of own reputation has been tarnished with allies and partners. And I think, Emma, one of the points you raised in your article too is about um, this idea of unpredictability in the United States. And when the United States, if we don't take care of our own divisions, then we run the risk of swinging wildly from one extreme to the next with every election. And that is a sentiment that I do hear from some in European interlocutors um, that also kind of gives rise to the strategic autonomy that they have to be able to chart their own course because of this fear that the United States might not be reliable um, on some of these issues. In, in thinking about what the US needs to do, Emma, like what would you put kind of in, in your order of operations as we're thinking about addressing democracy? You know, what would be some of the things that you think are most urgent for the United States to address at home? Yeah, I actually think this this problem of partisan polarization and, and unpredictability, I actually think that's one of the biggest problems facing US foreign policy going forward. Um, and unfortunately, I'm not sure I actually have a good solution to it because it is it is clear to me that that um, the parties are polarizing. One side is far more polarized than the other, um, and that until something can be done to try and restore the balance there, we are going to have this unpredictability in in foreign policy. Um, I mean, so I the, the problem I think for European allies is not knowing whether we're going to swing between an Obama-Biden style sort of liberal internationalism or a, a Trump or somebody like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, sort of very hawkish unilateral view of the world. And I think it's that multilateralism versus unilateralism is the thing that we're swinging back and forward between between the parties. Um, and so, I mean, really about the only idea that I have or the only sort of solution I, I have is that we need to find a way that foreign policy experts need to find a way to try and shape perceptions within the Republican party um, that sort of aligns that foreign policy somewhat more closely with where the Democratic Party is these days. But I'm not really sure I see how that's possible. So I don't think this is a very good answer. But but unfortunately, I think that's how I see the situation. It's an unfairly difficult question, yes. <laughs> I can also throw this into the mix. So we had a question from one of our Brussels Sprouts listeners, Charlotte Gorman, and she asked a variation on this question. Um, as people who focus on national security and foreign policy, what can we learn and possibly integrate from hard-won lessons learned from democracy building abroad? And how can we take those lessons that we've learned abroad and apply them to efforts at home? So to address voter suppression, misinformation, gerrymandering. Yeah, I can jump in on, on this. I mean, so look, I think America's problems at home are so 
deeply rooted and structural that I think we ought to be humble about, you know, our ability, certainly as foreign policy experts, to sort of solve that. And I actually don't really see a huge trade-off between, like, if we were to focus on the foreign policy part, then there are things we're not doing at home. I just don't understand how that works. Like, that means that Tony Blinken, if he comments on my memoir, is somehow not doing something about, you know, fixing democracy at home, you know, he can do both to the extent that he, there is something he can do on the domestic front. I think this is going to play out um, over over a decade or, or longer. I would favor all of the things, Carissa, you mentioned, you know, every single one in terms of um, the, the legislation that's been proposed on, on combating voter suppression and, and, and increasing registration, all of that. But the problem is that's not going to pass, right? There's been an election that's basically gridlocked, right? That's the political reality. So I totally agree with Emma that, you know, one side is much more polarized than the other. Um, but we're just going to have to go struggle through this, I think, and hope through best efforts we come out the other end with a better um, uh, democracy. I don't think there's, you know, if Biden had won in a landslide, I think there would be a whole ton of things that could be done very quickly. I just want to make two brief points too, just on Andrea's comment about what can be done. I mean, I do think there's something that can be done, right? And I think the thing that can be done is to exploit the Delta, exploit the difference between Trump and the Republican Senate, right? And some in the uh, Republican senators and House members. So, you know, pass legislation saying you can't leave NATO without a congressional act, right? And codify into law some of the reporting on human rights and, and reduce the room for maneuver that the executive has um, to ignore that and to ignore human rights in certain respects, to basically shockproof the system now um, so that if Trump or someone likes him comes back in four years, that they are more constrained in what they can do and to support European strategic autonomy within you know, reason and, and we can work out the details so that they are more capable of, of dealing with the Trump or Trump-like person if they return. Uh, and the final point I just wanna make is just something Emma said about, you know, um, not wanting to interfere with interests. I mean, I just, I mean, you know, again, I guess what puzzles me about it is you are advocating that on, on Saudi Arabia, right? So you're saying the US should act where it has leverage and it could make a difference even if it damages interests because MBS will regard that negatively. You know, my attitude is I don't really care about his reaction to that um, because I think that pressure is important to place constraints upon him because when Trump brought him a blank check, you know, we know what happened. But there is to me sort of a, you know, it is a little, it is something I think we need to figure out. I mean, if it's good enough for Saudi Arabia, then why would we not say the same thing about Myanmar, take actions there? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, so those are those are great points. On, on the question of Saudi Arabia, you know, I think we may differ on how important Saudi Arabia is to our interests. Um, you know, I have written pretty broadly about this in the past. I don't want to drag a European podcast into, into the Middle East. Um, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is far less important to our interests than it used to be. Um, and even if you think Saudi Arabia is still somewhat important, which, which I do, um, you know, I, I think the, that we need to bear in mind that they are far more dependent on us than we are on them. That gives us a source of leverage to work on their human rights abuses, even while we're, we're sort of continuing to achieve our interests. See the equation. So, so my my argument is is simply that you know Saudi Arabia isn't Russia, 
right? We can actually have that influence on Saudi Arabia. We should probably do it. Um, and then back to your question about, you know, if we if we do pursue foreign policy goals, then, you know, we're taking attention away from, from uh, things at home. I agree. That's probably an overly simplistic way to, to put it. And it really isn't about, you know, Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken having to give up two hours of his day in order to turn around and he's going to fix democracy at home instead. That's that's not what, what it is. And that's not what we're talking about. What it is, is about the difference between a very activist global foreign policy that goes out and tries to solve problems around the world, tries to reshape the world in our interests, um, and then the impacts that that has here um, on, our, on our domestic politics. And, you know, I think um, some of the sort of progressive activists speaking out against, you know, forever wars or endless wars, as, as much as I hate that phrase, I think they have a point that, you know, 20 years of the war on terror has had significant impacts on the way that we pursue um, extremism and policing here at home. And we saw a lot of that coming to fruition on January 6th. There were a number of veterans of those wars in the crowd, um, you know, and th there are a lot of ways in which that mentality of 20 years of fighting a global war on terror has, has helped to create some of the problems with our democracy today. So I, I think you're right. Framing it very simplistically as it's an absolute trade-off um, is, is not a good way to put it. Um, but it is a question, I think, of what impact our activist foreign policy ends up having on our politics here at home and whether we can tolerate more of those impacts going forward. So I think maybe is that the crux of where the difference between your two views is, is kind of the degree to which that support for democracy plays a role in foreign policy. So it sounds like, Emma, like you would advocate a more modest kind of humble approach or rethinking about where we apply the leverage that we have. Whereas, Tom, maybe you're kind of saying, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can do both. And we really shouldn't kind of just because of what's happening at home, we shouldn't really take the foot off the gas of our efforts to support democracy globally. I don't know. Is that a fair, maybe it's, I mean, it's, it's not a stark contrast. I think it's just a difference of degree, but is that kind of a fair characterization of maybe where the debate really sits? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. So, you know, I, I think what you said was basically right. You know, for me, it's about defensive. Um, it's about thinking about how we showed up democracy at home, how we make our, our polity stronger, how we, you know, within this sort of community of democracies that actually exists, how we keep that community strong and stop it from sort of falling apart. How do we stop more countries like Hungary? coming up, um, you know, and perhaps this is the place to mention that summit of democracies, right? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a great idea. I'm not particularly a fan, but if it is gonna happen, then I believe the purpose should be defensive. It should be consolidated democracies getting together to talk about our problems and learn lessons from one another. It shouldn't be about trying to, again, make this about spreading democracy all around the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably a little I, I agree, Andrea, generally with that, but I think it's probably a bigger difference as well because, um, you know, just in, in, a, in, a, in a couple of respects, I mean, one is like, I think that it's because, firstly, I agree it's defensive, right? I mean, the whole global issue of democracy is more of democracy protection than it is of democracy promotion right now. And even where we're dealing with autocratic regimes, it's places like, you know, Hong Kong and China, where there's been a serious regression, right? So we're trying to defend commitments they made under international law 
you know, that directly affects millions of people who were living relatively freely until relatively recently, right? So, and in Xinjiang, again, problems there for a long time, but a, a, a huge regression in the levels of repression. So I think one difference is whether or not we view it that you can be defensive nationally or you need to be defensive globally and whether we need to be active in trying to protect democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And they're not always the same thing, obviously, you know, like Hong Kong was never really democratic, but it did have a rule of law um, that I think was um, important. And the other part, just to, you know, try to put a, a, an example on it. I mean, I'd be interested just on where we diverge on the issue of anti-corruption, right? I mean, anti-corruption legislation, something progressives, who, by the way, are, are actually quite hawkish on the democracy autocracy issue, except in a non-kinetic, non-military way. I mean, some of the stuff Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wrote about were way, you know, beyond what President Biden is sort of describing it as, or, or you know, or at least at least at the same level in terms of democracy versus autocracy. But that anti-corruption uh, uh, idea is a dagger directly aimed. Right at Vladimir Putin and um, at Xi Jinping. I mean, make no mistake, right? They view that as regime change. They view it as a direct threat to their vital interests. It's one of the reasons, you know, a lot of the Xi repression started in the first place is over the Bloomberg, New York Times stuff on corruption inside China and the stuff they uncovered and then his anti corruption measures to try to consolidate power. Um, like, my view is that that is a necessary. Um, policy, not only to protect democracy overseas, but also to protect it at home, right? Because many of these networks are sort of international, you know, Trumpism is part of this larger movement. Um, I do think we need to take a sort of strong stance in that. But I'm also, I think, a, a little bit cautioned, knowing like the geopolitical impact of that. I mean, it's, it's a pointy end of the spear action, right? Um, but when I hear that, I'm not saying Emma's saying this, but when I hear the general conversation, you know, including uh, sometimes when progressives advocate this, it, it's, you know, I think it's important to realize Putin cares more about that than he does about the US reinvading Iraq, right? Like that that is more of a threat to him. It's the soft power um, that is a big threat and, and the, you know, the, the other sort of economic coercive stuff that's a threat to them. Um, and I think we need to figure out, you know, and, and I think ultimately there's a trade-off because we could end up in a position where we tolerate autocratic elements at home because we don't want to threaten others abroad. So Emma, I'm glad you brought up the Summit of Democracies. Um, Tom, I was going to pose this question to you since Emma aired sort of where she is on this issue. Where are you on the Summit of Democracies? Good idea, bad idea? And then to put it to both of you, should we have a domestic summit in the United States as well to shore up democracy here? Um, if we do this abroad, who should be invited? Um, you know, what should they be focused on in those conversations? And what do we do about Hungary, Poland, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, longstanding U.S. allies who are more on the liberal side? Yeah, thanks, Kirsten. No, great question. I, look, I'm pretty cool on the idea, I think. I mean, I don't think it's sort of you know, I, I think the president promised it in the campaign. I, I think they'll do something, you know, uh, my strong advice would be not to have that as the key deliverable. 
you know, I started I, uh, working on a, pro, a Princeton project in national security many years ago. The centerpiece of that was a concert of democracies. Um, I, you know, I think we all have scars from that in terms of the definitional obstacles that I think are basically impossible to surmount for exactly the things you're saying, who's there, the protocol issues, the, the issues about do you include the Brazilians or not? And then if you don't, India, like what are the repercussions for the bilateral relationship? No one's going to agree on anything. I didn't think the nuclear security summit was a great model either, um, to be honest. Um, so I think the whole thing, it could backfire. If it's a smaller thing, on the back of a lot of practical cooperation, I think it's it's sort of fine. And my, my advice would be to, to actually do that, like to focus on multiple overlapping sort of coalitions, a little bit like the proliferation security initiative from the 2000s, where it's action outcome oriented. I wouldn't talk about it that much, I just do it, right? And then I'd have people connect the dots and say, boy, they're, they're really serious about democracy, right? But much better to, to just do it and have that implied than to make it sort of doctrinal. I'm also not a huge fan, I think, of the domestic summit because, I mean, I'd love if that would work, right? But I think it just assumes a level of unity on these questions that doesn't exist, you know? And I mean, what would, we could have that and Mitt Romney would be there, you know? And maybe, uh, maybe Ben Sass, maybe on a good day, right? And then you have like 40, 5% of the country, you know, not there. So I think we have a huge amount of work to do that it's not, there's no silver bullet, you know, uh, and, and I think it's just gonna take a huge amount of work. Um, and I, I don't even, hardly even know where to start on it, but I feel like a domestic summit is sort of the icing on the cake at the end, you know, rather than, it's not, a, it's not like a, a natural disaster, I mean, you could, you know, you could imagine something like 9-11, a terrorist attack or the coronavirus as a pandemic or something where you'd potentially have the country uniting on this. But what happened in January 6th gets to deep divisions right through the middle of, of, of the electorate. I can't believe I'm saying this, Tom. I think we finally found areas we actually agree on. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the domestic summit. It's um, it's not clear who would attend or what it would achieve. You know, at the risk of straying outside my lane here, you know, I think if there is going to be domestic reform, it's going to have to come at the state level, at the grassroots level, and it's going to be slow and it's probably going to take, as, as Tom said earlier, it's probably going to take a decade. So I'm not sure a domestic summit would would help much. Um, and and I also, you know. As, as Tom said, I also kind of agree on the, the summit of democracies idea. It's not really clear what it's doing. It could be small and, you know, defensive in nature and that might work, um, but, but it's not really something original or something new in that case. Um, um, I do think where the summit of democracies would become really problematic is on this question that Tom posed about anti-corruption. And he's right that some progressive politicians in particular have been very gung-ho on this um, in a way that I think underestimates the foreign policy impacts that it could have. You know, so for myself, while I think, you know, again, work on these things domestically, um, work on them with sort of within the Western community of democracies, right? So money laundering in the UK, huge issue, Russian money, Emirati money, Saudi money, you know, Qatari money, all, all of that flowing through the UK. That's something that the UK really should address domestically. 
But I think where it becomes problematic and, and where this sort of some of democracies could become problematic is when it starts to become outward facing, right? So when it becomes um, a, a sort of a global campaign to handle anti-corruption, and, and that's something that politicians like Elizabeth Warren have actually proposed. And I think that could end up being very threatening to some of these autocracies and might provoke responses that we, that we really don't like. Um, and then I also think we should be somewhat careful about the language because I think it's worth remembering that autocracies often take the language of some of these campaigns that we use and actually use them to crack down on their own populations. So, you know, we've seen anti-corruption campaigns inside China, inside, you know, a variety of, of countries. The Saudi crackdown a few years ago was technically anti-corruption. Um, and I think it's worth remembering that what's happening right now in Xinjiang actually started as uh, the Chinese saying, well, we have our own global war on terror. We're going to crack down on this, this Muslim majority population. And that was so long ago, we don't really talk about it right now. But they did use that language to try and legitimate it. So again, I think, you know, dealing with these problems internally is a must, but we have to be very careful about how we frame that and who it's directed at, or it will end up having big foreign policy consequences down the road. Well, I was almost thinking we were going to end on a point of consensus between Tom and Emma, but then Emma kind of started to go down a different path. Right. We were <laughs> close. We were close. Um, well, this was a, a really um, thought-provoking episode, and I'm hopeful, um, and I'm sure that listeners will find it really useful. So I just want to say a huge thank you to Tom and Emma, um, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again. Um, I have a feeling the Democracy Summit is coming. It's probably closer towards the end of the year, so maybe we can come back together and kind of take stock of, of where we are um, as, that, as that rolls closer. But thank you to both of you for joining us. Thank you so much to, to, to you all as well. Thank you. Yeah, great Thank you. to chat with you all. And I want to give just a quick uh, plug here um, for our partnership with Bear Radio. Um, and if you enjoy Brussels sprouts and you want to hear more stories that are being produced in Europe, um, you're, you'll be happy to know that there's more where this came from. Um, Bear Radio is Berlin's English-speaking podcasting network and community and home to a number of incredible shows. We really love the Ideas podcast. It's a student podcast from the John F. Kennedy School in Berlin, and they discuss popular issues facing young people. So you should check out their latest series uh, that they have now on the Biden how the Biden administration might affect the lives of Berliners. Uh, they have currently 22 podcasts and hundreds of episodes available for you to listen to. So head over to bearradio.org and get listening. <laughs>